and welcome to the second podcast of the London Corporate Crime and Investigations team here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Our aim is to bring to you timely and incisive commentary on key developments in the CCNI space. I'm Kate Meakin, an off-counsel in the team here, and with me today are Susanna Cogman, partner, and Catherine Boyd, a senior associate. Today we're going to talk about the Law Commission's recent report on the Suspicious Activity Report, or SARS regime, under the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002. The report was published in June 2019, following a consultation last year. It weighs in at 219 pages, so some of our listeners may not have read it all yet. In this podcast, we will be providing an overview of the report and its recommendations. The report focuses in particular on authorised disclosures, i.e. those made by a person in advance of dealing with funds or property, where the reporter seeks the benefit of a defence against a money laundering offence. These are known as consent reports or DAML reports. Susanna, uh, what were the reasons for the report? Why was this an area ripe for consultation? Well, there's been a, a perception for some years that the UK SAR regime is inefficient, with some sectors supposedly under-reporting and some over-reporting, uh, making SARs which are said to be defensive, to not meet the suspicion threshold for reporting, or to be of poor quality. And with the volume of SARs rising year on year, there's an increasing burden on both law enforcement processing SARs and the regulated sector making them. So the primary purpose of the Law Commission's work was to improve the prevention, detection and prosecution of money laundering through addressing problems in the SARS regime. Okay, and can you give us a feel for the sorts of numbers we're talking about in terms of these reports? Yeah, so it's very high volumes, as I said. Uh, SARS have doubled over the last 10 years and continue to, to rise. To give you a feeling for that, between April 2017 and March 2018, the UK Financial Intelligence Unit, the FIU, within the National Crime Agency, which receives SARS, received and processed 4,063,938 SARs, so just under half a million, which amounts to a nearly 10% increase on the equivalent volume in 2016 to 2017. Now, of those, 22,619 were authorised disclosures, so seeking consent, um, and again, that represents a 20% increase on the previous year's volume of disclosures. In February 2019 alone, 4,000 consent SARs were received in comparison with 2,000 in February 2018. So that's around uh, 100 consent SARs a day, which need to be individually looked at and a decision made whether or not to grant or refuse consent. And why are there so many? So opinions differ, um, but the the factors which have been identified uh, include firstly, the broad definition of money laundering under the Proceeds of Crime Act, so the fact that um, you can commit a money laundering offence by the laundering of any proceeds of any type of criminal conduct anywhere in the world. I'm sure we'll come back to that when we're talking about Mm. the Law Commission's recommendations. Uh, Secondly, confusion or perceived confusion regarding reporting obligations and the understanding of suspicion in particular So the report uh, reflects some analytical work which the Law Commission had done on uh, SARS and found that around 50% of the SARS that they sampled actually didn't meet the threshold for suspicion and were therefore wholly unnecessary on their face. Thirdly, uh, personal criminal liability for individuals who failed to report and there's a perception that this may drive uh, defensive reporting. I see. 
And who is dealing with all of these reports? Yeah, well, as I said, the UK Financial Intelligence Unit sits within the NCA and they're responsible for receiving, analysing and disseminating uh, suspicious activity reports, although in many cases they work with other law enforcement agencies uh, to make decisions on whether or not to grant consent. So the FIU has 109 full-time staff as of December 2018, although it's been announced that they're aiming to expand that capacity by 30% in 2019 and with additional recruitment for the next two years. So to address this sort of volume of SARS problem, you've both got the Law Commission looking at reform um, of the legal framework, but also additional resourcing and other steps that are being taken by government. And I understand um, 19 recommendations in total. Can you give us a flavour of those before we hear perhaps further on some of the specific recommendations of particular interest? Sure. So the Law Commission effectively have recommended that the core of the current regime um, should be retained. So whatever comes out of this uh, consultation process, it's not going to be a radical overhaul of poker. So we'll still have a consent regime. Uh, They're recommending we maintain the all crimes approach. That is that any criminal offence can give rise to proceeds which can then be laundered. Um, and they're not suggesting that there be a de, de minimis sort of value threshold uh, for reporting or for uh, seeking consent. Um, but the changes that they are recommending include introducing a legislative obligation on the Secretary of State to issue statutory guidance on certain aspects of the reporting regime um, and the creation of an advisory board which will be made up of experts from the public and private sector that will oversee the drafting and development of that statutory guidance, who will be doing work to continue to measure the effectiveness of the regime building on the analytical work that the Law Commission has already uh, conducted, um, and who will advise the Secretary of State on ways in which the regime could be improved further. And there's a number of specific areas that would merit further research, which are flagged uh, in the report. Uh, There's also a recommendation that a prescribed uh, form be introduced for uh, SAR reporting. Uh, There's already, in fact, a legislative provision in the Proceeds of Crime Act that would permit that, but its um, format hasn't yet been prescribed for the purposes of that section. Um, And they're recommending that the statutory guidance, uh, which I've already mentioned, uh, should cover some specific areas, including in particular reasonable excuse. So the idea is that that um, will be used to address some specific examples of low intelligence value um, SARS and address situations, therefore, in which reports actually aren't required. Um, They're also proposing a new defence to address problems which banks can have when clean and dirty funds are, are mixed together in an account. And will those changes be welcomed by the regulated sector, do you think? Um, Well, it's worth noting that the consultation was of relatively limited scope. So there was an invitation for consultees to submit views on replacing the consent regime altogether. But most of the Law Commission's work and its terms of reference and as a result its recommendations are focused on incremental changes within the existing framework to make it more efficient. So the changes that they've proposed, I think, will have that effect. They are broadly positive uh, and welcome clarifications of the existing regime and if implemented they should cut down on some unnecessary reports. Um, But it doesn't really do much more than that. Um, It's not bad, it's quite good, 
but some will think it a bit of a missed opportunity to really probe the purpose and effectiveness of the consent regime um, and look at more radical solutions. Susanna, you mentioned the suspicion threshold. Um, Will the guidance change that threshold? Broadly, no. Uh, So the context to this is that the concept of suspicion, which is the the mens rea threshold, the mental state required for a money laundering offence, and therefore the trigger for an authorised disclosure, isn't defined in statute. Um, And the case law, uh, and in particular a decision called R under Silver, sets a low threshold of more than fanciful possibility, arguably driving defensive reporting. Uh, So all of the various sector-specific guidance tries to clarify what the concept means. In each case, they do it in slightly different ways. Uh, The Law Commission actually originally consulted on a slightly different proposal, rather than uh, giving guidance on suspicion, which was to change the threshold from suspicion, which is a subjective test, to a test which would in effect have required a reporter to have objective reasonable grounds to suspect as well as a subjective suspicion. It was a slightly complicated way in which they were doing that and it met with very mixed consultation responses, um, some of which questioned whether the proposal would actually cut down the volume of poor quality SARS at all um, and uh, some of those responses raising other concerns, uh, for example, that it could lead to satellite litigation regarding whether a reporter's suspicions were reasonable or not. Um, so having considered all of those responses, the Law Commission abandoned those proposals and decided to stick with the current suspicion threshold. It has, however, noted as an area for further analysis by the advisory board whether the threshold should in the future be changed. Um, And that is in particular in light of the data analysis they took after the initial consultation. I mentioned this earlier. Um, They reviewed a week's worth of authorised disclosure, so around 500 SARS. um, And from that, they concluded that in around 15% of cases, uh, the sample actually didn't meet the suspicion threshold um, on the face of the information provided uh, in the SAR. So that's been sort of parked for now. But in terms of defining suspicion, the Law Commission hasn't recommended a statutory definition, but has said that the Secretary of State should issue guidance on how to identify suspicion um, so that that guidance is more consistent across the regulated sector. Catherine, Susanna mentioned the fact that all crimes are within the scope of poker. Um, Has there been any recommendation in respect of, of that? Has that been looked at? Yes. So as Susanna said, at the moment, individuals in the regulated sector are required to report money laundering of the proceeds of all crime, regardless of the seriousness of the underlying crime that's suspected. And in some ways, that makes it easier for a reporter because they don't have to identify the type of crime that might have been committed. But there's a perception that that has generated large amounts of technical SARS in relation to either minor or regulatory offences and that that diverts resources away from real money laundering risks and also creates a disproportionate burden on the legal sector. This all-crimes approach also actually exceeds the minimum standards that are required by the EU and by FATF. There was some support for making changes to the reporting obligations, but there were a number of difficulties identified with doing so. The first is that it will often not be apparent at the time of submitting a SAR what predicate crime is suspected of having been committed. And the alternative approaches would require reporters to identify the predicate crime 
And that would potentially require further investigation and more legal knowledge and would place an unfair burden on smaller businesses in particular. There's also a difficulty with determining what actually constitutes a serious crime. And it would actually be almost impossible to create and maintain a list of serious offences. Also, some regulatory crimes might actually be serious crimes, such as some environmental offences or burying or burning hazardous waste, for example. As Susanna mentioned, the Law Commission did an analysis of a sample of disclosures. And when they did that analysis, they actually found that the majority of disclosures which identified a predicate offence related to a serious offence. So 97.8% of those, if a serious crime is defined as one where the maximum penalty was more than a year's imprisonment. So the proposal actually seems unlikely to have much practical effect in cutting the volume of SARS. And am I right that there are two sort of elements to this? One is the level of seriousness of the crime and the other is a de minimis threshold in terms of the value of the criminal property that's at stake. Yes, so the difficulty really is that um, the value of the criminal property won't necessarily equate to the seriousness of the crime. So, for example, if there's a vulnerable victim or low-level offending, but that actually relates to terrorist financing. So the Law Commission's ultimate recommendation was to retain an all-crimes approach because they don't actually have the evidence to justify recommending a change, and they're also concerned about overcomplicating the system. But they did suggest that the advisory board could consider whether there are specific offences which it can be agreed generate little in the way of useful intelligence and should not be therefore considered serious crimes. And so the government could perhaps consider including examples in the statutory guidance of these as cases where there may be a reasonable excuse not to file a SAR. It's probably also worth saying that, as I alluded to at the outset, there are some other areas of low intelligence value reporting which the Law Commission is suggesting be addressed by guidance on reasonable excuse. So in other words, that there should be statutory guidance setting out that authorised disclosures aren't required in certain cases. Um, so those include uh, banks making repayments to the victims of crime um, or permitting reporters to make a single SAR for multiple transactions on the same account uh, or multiple transactions in respect of the same person or company. They've also recommended that the advisory board should consider developing guidance on duplicate reporting obligations, for example, where reports are currently made in parallel to both the FIU and action fraud. Uh, A bit frustratingly, um, they've not uh, at present recommended that the reasonable excuse guidance be used to de-scope a couple of other areas that originally consulted on, namely uh, extraterritorial conduct um, and suspicions based on information in the public domain. So as as things stand, those would still fall to be uh, reported in the normal way. Susanna, I understand that one of the elements looked at was that of um, fungibility and ring fencing of, of, of dirty funds. Can you explain what that covers? Yes. So let's say that you're a bank um, and a customer has £90 of clean funds in his account um, and he then deposits £10 of dirty money. The £10 is fungible with the other money in the account. So does that mean that you, the bank, need to freeze the entire £100 in the account because it's all become mixed up together and seek consent to any transaction? Or can you ring fence the £10 and continue to deal with the clean uh, sort of equivalent of £90 worth of that money? 
So the legal arguments on this issue are quite complex. For any listeners who want to know more about this, there's an interesting discussion in the original consultation paper. The Law Commission argues by both sides of the coin and doesn't come down firmly on either. Uh, The consultation responses suggest that banks' practices in this area are mixed. So some people ring fence as a pragmatic approach and some freeze the entire account. I think what is apparent to my mind is that it's completely unsatisfactory for banks not to have clarity on what they can and can't legally do in this space. Uh, The law should be much clearer and the Law Commission, it seems, agrees with that as a proposition. Uh, It's also apparent that ring fencing can limit what would otherwise be disproportionate impacts on customers. So there can be a very severe Uh, economic and personal consequences flowing for a customer if their bank account is frozen. Um, And bear in mind in this context that that's being done um, potentially on a very low suspicion-based threshold. If only £10 of a customer's money is criminal property, it's difficult to see any compelling policy reason for the bank freezing £100 of it, um, even temporarily pending consent. And just on that, what timeframes are we talking about for consent um, to come through? Um, so there are some timeframes inbuilt into the uh, Proceeds of Crime Act. So when you seek consent, there's a seven working day notice period that starts to run in which the NCA can grant uh, or refuse consent. Um, if they refuse consent, though, in that time frame, there's a further Uh, moratorium period um, of uh, approximately a month which starts to run um, at the end of which there's deemed consent uh, subject to the fact that they can then uh, apply to extend the moratorium period uh, for further periods to facilitate investigation subject to um, certain conditions. So um, potentially for a very long period of time, in practice, in most cases, um, that consent will be given within the seven working days. But actually not having access to an account, even for a small number of days, could have um, severe consequences for the account holder. So to address this issue, the Law Commission has recommended an amendment to uh, the Proceeds of Crime Act to uh, provide uh, credit and financial institutions with a clearer exemption from the principal money laundering offences if criminal property is ring-fenced. And they've also recommended that where an application for an extension to the moratorium period is made by law enforcement, as I've just described, that the judge should have power to order that funds be released for reasonable living expenses. Um, Following the consultation, there have been um, some changes to the detail of the proposed amendment to um, the Act, for example, extending it to financial institutions as well as uh, credit uh, institutions. Um, So I think this is, uh, in my view, a really positive development that will provide greater clarity for reporters. And the Law Commission has also suggested that the proposed statutory guidance should address the proper operation of uh, these new ring-fencing Uh, provisions. So we've heard a bit about some of the recommendations that have been made and the points dealt with. Are there outstanding points which have not been dealt with under the recommendations? And I'm thinking in particular, as part of the wider backdrop, listeners might have in mind the possibility of the introduction of a broader failure to prevent economic crime offence. Was this considered in the context of these recommendations? 
Uh, so yes, it was considered. Um, and the backdrop to this is, as you know, Kate, is that in 2017, the Ministry of Justice issued a call for evidence on corporate liability for economic crime, the response to which is, is still awaited uh, two years on. Uh, but that call for evidence uh, suggested, amongst uh, other models of corporate liability, that a failure to prevent model such as that used in the Bribery Act in respect of bribery and the failure to prevent the facilitation of tax evasion um, offences for the facilitation of tax evasion um, should be extended to apply to other forms of economic crime, including money laundering. Uh, and there have been further calls since then for reform of this sort, including by the former and current directors of the Serious Fraud Office. So the Law Commission asked for views about the possibility of introducing a new corporate offence, either on a failure to prevent model or with vicarious liability, to impose criminal liability on a commercial organisation whose associates fail to report suspicions of money laundering. Interestingly, they uh, considered this in parallel with possible changes to reduce the scope for individual criminal liability for failure to report. So they suggested that a change in the sort of balance between individual and corporate criminal liability might reduce defensive reporting and drive better corporate culture. Mm. Uh, but many consultation responses pointed out that in the regulated sector, companies can already commit criminal offences uh, if they don't have adequate anti-money laundering policies and procedures, in particular under the money laundering regulations. So it's unclear what a new form of criminal liability uh, would be seeking to achieve. So differing views, what was the outcome? Well, the consultees were pretty equally split with just over half favouring a new offence and just under half uh, against. Ultimately, the report makes no recommendations for change. The Commission has said that this should be reconsidered after the Ministry of Justice issues its response to the call for evidence. However, I think it's clear that this concept of a new failure to prevent offence continues to have momentum. It was actually interesting just that the fact that it had popped up uh, in what was otherwise a quite narrowly scoped uh, Law Commission consultation. So I think we are very much in a sort of watch this space uh, for further proposals in this area. Was there anything else new and exciting in the Law Commission's proposals? Um, did they take the opportunity to consider new ways to gather information in a more targeted way? Well, one thing that was quite interesting was the Law Commission's call for views on the introduction of thematic reporting requirements to complement the existing money laundering reporting regime. The idea of thematic reporting is that it allows law enforcement agencies to target specific transactions, sectors or behaviour where there is a greater risk of money laundering or terrorist financing, and also to gather information even in the absence of suspicion. Some of the examples given in the report included requiring estate agents to report all real estate transactions over a million pounds, and also to require private schools to make reports about the payment of school fees, which is perceived to be an area of money laundering risk, but those schools are not currently within the regulated sector. They also looked at certain reporting requirements relating to cash transactions. There's also a concept of geographical targeting orders, which would require reporting of transactions occurring in a particular location. They've been successfully used in the past in the US. 
The idea of this thematic reporting is that it could build a better intelligence picture by moving away from the subjective judgments that are inherent in suspicion-based reporting. On the other hand, there are resourcing implications both for the firms that would need to make these reports and indeed for the agencies receiving them. And there are privacy implications for those who are subject to reports, particularly when we're talking about reports in respect of transactions where there may, may be no suspicion. The Law Commission's recommended that further research be conducted into the utility of targeted reporting and that there would be a cost-benefit analysis of that. But it hasn't gone as far as to recommend the introduction of new powers at this time. Interestingly, though, the recently published Economic Crime Plan has resurrected the suggestion of geographic targeting orders, with a proposal that these be introduced by July 2020. So in a similar vein, in terms of the possibility of harnessing potentially broader or thematic information, uh, what was discussed regarding the issue of sharing information among banks and financial institutions? So chapter 13 of the report considers so-called pre-suspicion information sharing. This is the sharing of information between regulated firms, for example, where there are concerns about a customer or a transaction that's common to both firms, but prior to a suspicion being formed. The idea is that this information sharing might help to either dispel the concern or confirm a suspicion, with the result that both firms either avoid an unnecessary report or file a better quality SAR. There's already a framework for voluntary information sharing between credit and financial institutions uh, introduced by the Criminal Finances Act 2017, the so-called SuperSAR provisions. But these only apply after a suspicion has been formed. Um, And it's fair to say that legislation is spectacularly badly drafted and difficult for firms to follow. Uh, Pre-SAR information sharing is somewhat controversial given the privacy implications for affected customers uh, and a perceived risk that the sharing of information could itself lead to them being debanked. There were mixed responses from consultees on this topic uh, and on the related question of whether membership of the Joint Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force, uh, GIMLIT, should be expanded. Uh, Ultimately, the Law Commission refrained from making any specific recommendations and just highlighted the potential benefits of both measures for further uh, consideration. Uh, On a related topic, and this is a slightly different form of information sharing, uh, the government has made some proposals in the Economic Crime Plan to enhance the sharing of information within groups uh, between firms and between firms and law enforcement, with a range of actions due at various dates in 2020. What can we expect next? Uh, you mentioned the Economic Crime Plan 2019 to 2022. How does this report fit in with that and the plans set out in there? So the Economic Crime Plan contains a number of key themes, which to some extent reflect um, themes discussed by the Law Commission, including increasing public and private sector collaboration, reducing burden on businesses, uh, but equally the need to appropriately deter money laundering and terrorist financing offences. It discusses a range of proposals in relation to financial crime more generally and money laundering specifically, including in relation to implementation of the Fifth Money Laundering Directive, which uh, our listeners are probably aware is due in January 2020. Um, But specifically on um, SARS reform and the UK Financial Intelligence Unit, 
uh, which is actions 30 to 32 of the plan for anyone who wants to have a look. The plan discusses the uh, proposals and need for capacity improvements within the FIU with specific uh, proposals around enhancements to IT platforms and portals with near-term improvements anticipated by December 2020, reviewing the consent uh, SARS system, taking into account the Law Commission's findings and potentially introducing geographical targeting orders similar to those used in the US by July 2020. Full delivery of the revised target operating SARS regime is uh, meant to be happening in 2023 to 2024. So effectively, the Law Commission proposals tie into that broader piece of work, which includes other policy and legislative developments, but also the sort of technological side of respecking the uh, SAR Online reporting system. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a chance to talk about the Economic Crime Plan in a bit more detail in a later podcast. Indeed. Many thanks, Susanna and Catherine, um, and thank you for listening. Please keep an eye out for further episodes in our podcast series.